Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hi everybody. In today's episode, I chat with Susan Sprague about advocating for social work. We talk about how she's become the social worker that she is, how her journey led her to where she is now, running a private practice out in Geelong, being a member of the board for the ASW, and a whole bunch of stuff in between. And I wanted to do this episode so that we can get an idea about how we can advocate for ourselves. I've met so many incredible social workers who work endlessly and tirelessly to support other people, to advocate for change, to support vulnerable members of the community, to challenge policy, challenge political discourse, to educate. And the list list goes on. It's There's so many areas that social workers get involved in to influence change. And one thing that I think maybe we're not so good at is advocating for ourselves, for a united professional identity, and to advocate for the skills and the diverse range of skills that we have as social workers and how we can get involved with with our, our registering body or with other areas to promote ourselves a little bit more so we can continue to do the work that we do. So here's my interview with Susan Sprague. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm here talking with Suzanne Sprague. Welcome to the podcast. Um, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. So we had already a bit of a, oh, what's your right name? Do you want to share with the audience how they might know you under different names and what we're doing moving forward? Yeah, and it's not an alias. Um, so I'm commonly known as Suzanne Duracus or Suzanne Duracus Sprague. Um, it is a hangover from a previous marriage, actually, so from a very long time ago. Um, so it is not uncommon. Uh, so I go by Sprague on Facebook and those sorts of platforms. And professionally, I go more by Doracus. So either or, or both. All right. Thanks. So if people find you and they're not sure if it's the right you, it could be under either of those. <laughs> That's correct. Okay. <laughs> So we're talking in the midst of social distancing. So we were just having a chat before we went on um, to record about the vulnerability it takes to sit in this space as a clinician. Um, It's not one of the things I plan to talk about, but I thought I think it's really valuable for our listeners to know that we're all human too and we're kind of struggling with some of the same things that a lot of the people we're working with are. Do you have um, anything you want to share on that? And isn't that nice that as social workers, we're more okay with that? So we're, we're more okay to sit in that space of discomfort and not needing to be uh, superior or more senior to anyone else, uh, obviously wanting to be professional. Um, we are professionals, so we, we don't want people um, feeling overwhelmed with our emotions. But I think it's really lovely that we can be very human with people and, and sit with that with them at the same time that we're experiencing it too. Yeah, that's so true. And how, um, I forgot to kind of give you a chance to introduce yourself. So we jumped straight into COVID-19, which I really should make into a swear giant every time it's, I say those words, dollar goes in. Um, tell us a little bit about your social work journey and what you're doing currently. 
Um, so I began um, uh, social work in a, in a very unusual way, which I believe is not uncommon for a lot of people. So I was 17 when I started at university and I was doing um, science and nursing and not knowing at all what I wanted to do. So it was advised to me in my very naive state that that would be a really great thing to do. It was the second year of nursing at universities um, and I had a passion as well for science and my elder sister um, is an industrial chemist and she um, you know paved the way she's only 14 months older than me and but it wasn't kind I love I love good chat I love good backstory so I kind of thought that it, pure science wasn't going to be it for me uh, so you know really sort of went, well, I'll have a crack at it. So I did, I did it. And, um, and that was really interesting because that was 89 that I started that. And um, yeah, so eight. And, you know, it's really interesting that my reflection on, um, on the changes to hygiene levels and being cautious and scared and all of those things at the same time does actually remind me of that, you know, the, the people being parents, do I wear gloves, don't I wear gloves, do I wash, how do I wash? And um, so at least I feel like I'm more, more braced for some of those thoughts. Um, so, so while I did that, the, the, the fortunate thing about doing that university science was that I had two years of pretty much everything. Two years of psychology, I had two years of science, I had two years, oh, well, if I hadn't done the extra, um, uh, sociology and things. So from that, I I, I, I springboarded on, and I did a another year, and I had my bachelor of arts in sociology, and another year, and I had uh, you know did my psychology, and at the same time as doing that, um, I was working full time in nightclubs, and at the same time as that, I decided to go and do a diploma in youth work at the Gordon. <laughs> which is the local tapia. So, um, yeah, so in a really short period of time, I got, I got a lot of things done. And as I was doing psychology, finishing the psychology, I realised it wasn't at all what I wanted it to be. So uh, I realised that um, nursing wasn't what I wanted it to be. I didn't get time to have lovely long talks with people. Um, psychology was uh, research and that really disappointed me and <laughs> and some of my friends who've done psychology said yeah and it doesn't get better when you go on to do your postgraduate work and I was completely disillusioned and happened to have had lovely long chats with people um, about uh, who being and one of them was actually a former priest and he was um, teaching at the welfare course at the Gordon and um, yeah, and just chats here and chats there. And he sort of mentioned about social work, as did a few other people. And I knew nothing about social work. I had, but I love sociology. I loved social sciences. I loved the feminist studies. I loved, and anyone said, well, that's, that's what it is. That's what you study, sort of all together. And I was sold. And then, so I enrolled. <laughs> but I think I was still finishing something else. And I enrolled in um, social work at Monash. And then finished social, and so I was studying by, I was partway through working at an organisation by that stage, uh, prior to that I'd already been working at the Red Cross in the industry, as well as still working in the nightclubs. And 
Um, then after that went on and um, got my masters at Flinders. So all together. Yeah, very eclectic combination of things. Oh yes, uh, but it's funny. I feel really odd when I say that, but then when I hear other people's stories of, I was still fairly young when all of that was happening. Uh, when I hear other people's stories and they seem to be quite as eclectic or coming at it much later than even I did. So, yeah, I understand that it is a bit of a journey for one of us to get to where we get to. <laughs> That's, um, it's really nice that it, I think it's maybe not as common or maybe it's changing now, I'm not sure, but there was a lot of pressure when you were first finishing school to choose something that led to something that then we stuck with. And I'm seeing more and more people, especially my role at the universities um, during the postgraduate course that have had similar journeys and maybe they might've even worked five or 10 years in a field and thought it's not as fulfilling as I wanted it to be, or I'm not using my interpersonal skills in the way I wanted and making that change later on in life and being so enthusiastic about their new career trajectory yes and that it's it's a kind of job where you can bring in so much of your own experience and make it what you want so there's a lot of like a very kind of technical skills but you can bring your own flavor to that and you can see some really amazing success stories of people come across from from nursing from i've even had students come across from it like really sometimes career paths you wouldn't have thought were going to be interested in social work and they've had some really successful outcomes. Yeah. No, it is. It's really lovely to see. And it's really interesting to see how people have then made that jump and the reasons behind it, isn't it? Yeah. So the moral of the story is if you're not listening because you're a social worker, then become one, maybe. (laughs) We want you. Who wouldn't? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Come over to the dark. Yeah, come over to the dark side, absolutely. Um, What are some of the first kind of, you know, entry-level difficult jobs that you had before you moved into where you are now? What are some of the things you remember about, like, the grunt work, the bottom? So I actually um, had some beautiful first jobs, Um, but some of my placements were a bit ordinary, I have to be honest. Um, So fortunately I was... um, a little bit more sold on what I wanted to do and also was already working in the human services so uh, and, and, and organisations and lovely, beautiful people, lovely supportive environments, doing really interesting work um, because I have to tell you, if it was based on the placements, I think I would have run, 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 run. Um, and, and I think that that's why I take placement really seriously so whenever we take on students. Um, you know, I, I, my biggest takeaway message is to try and make placements as enjoyable as possible and fulfilling. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I think my first placement was in child protection, and I I could have left the sector then. <laughs> I yeah. And I think there's a big. I mean, there's a probably room for a big um, revamp of that whole way of doing placement because often people don't. They might be really good at their craft, but they don't know how to teach it. Yeah. And I think that can be a real challenge is you're there eager, you're not sure of the boundaries, you're not sure of what you can and can't do. And if you don't have a direct supervisor who can work with that and really enhance your learning and bring you along on that journey, you can feel quite um, isolated and not sure what your role is and then question the whole degree and if you want to be a social worker. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, fortunately for me doing um, my nursing placements, they, at the start, and I'm, I'm not sure what they do now, but at the start you would, like right at the front end, you would do like a week at a community health centre, a day or two with a, um, a child maternal health nurse, and or even a what you could then go on and do a larger placement with them. But at the start, you actually got a few tastes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so fortunately, I had a bit of a look at some other areas as well. So perhaps, and you know, I'm hearing a lot of people saying that I think a review of the way we do placements um, is is not a bad idea. It is completely out of the realms of my knowledge base, and certainly, um, you know, hearing some of those uh, conversations at the board level around. Um, you know, from people who do work um, uh, in universities and things is, is interesting. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, uh, but, uh, but I'm hearing it a lot that people are saying the way we're doing placements, it's great that we do long hours because then people get great skill base. Um, but how that's delivered is potentially what people are thinking could be changed. I think from what I've seen, the challenge is that the social work role is so diverse there's no one expectation or idea of what that looks like. Whereas yeah. something perhaps like maybe nursing or even psychology, that's a very clear specific skill set. Yet so many social workers aren't employed as social workers or be employed as um, support workers or case managers or mental health practitioners or, or like domestic violence or intake. Like the title doesn't really describe exactly what a social worker done, does where in other qualifications you don't see that as much you just see yeah psychologist nurse yeah. it's very clear idea a professional identity in that way so it's hard I think for some placements to know exactly what to teach you because the role varies so much and it's so broad and I think other disciplines we could learn a lot from that a lot of, a lot of other uh, professionals would demand their title to be articulated more clearly yeah. um, without question you know, even I employ psychologists and they demand that they're called a psychologist without any question. Um, and because and, they see that as a, as a strength. And, um, yeah, maybe there's a take-home message for us about that. Absolutely. So moving into the work you're doing now, you're involved with the ASW. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, last year I was elected onto the board, and um, uh, so which is is really cool. I think that for a long time, uh, because I run a, a large group practice, that a lot of people ask for advice and input around um, how how people do that, how that's managed. Um, and it seems that they weren't getting some clear direction from our association. So they were going outside uh, to other disciplines in order to get that information. And being passionate social workers that we are, we kind of go, well, that's cool that we can get information from other areas in some ways, but then it's not cool that we're all reinventing the wheel. And broader than that, even for people who weren't in private practice, they were saying, I don't feel like our discipline is being valued. I feel it's being eroded away by other disciplines. If other people come in um, to our turf and, and it's not being protected very well. And for many years, this was being said. And I, I, I kind of thought there's a lot of value from not being on the inside because you can say a lot more broader things 
Um, but there is value of being on the inside because then you can go, well, you know, maybe I need to be the change. So it's, it was that decision about, you know, and what better, what, where, where is the best value of my voice? And yeah, so I kind of, <laughs> kind of put my hand up and went for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the interesting thing that people don't realise is when you're on a, on a board, uh, particularly for the ASW, they're very clear about their direction of what a board member can and can't do. And they're very uh, rigid around that being only around governance. And that means that uh, you're not allowed to have anything to do with anything on an operational level. So I, I guess that a lot of people then say, well, what are you doing and how's it happening? And, and there's certain things that I can and can't say. Um, and I can't then just pick up the phone to a staff member and ask them to do something or, or even inform them that things are happening. Try to, uh, but I can easily be told to step back, even though I'm a member myself. So, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's an interesting position to be on. I have been on a board before, um, but I've not ever been on a board that I'm a member of before. You know, so I, 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 being an active member and an active social worker, so I've not been on a board that I've worked in that area or, or so on before. So different. What are some of the, I guess challenges or things you have to try and balance being someone who wants to advocate for social workers and social workers also wanting to advocate for clients and trying to prioritize juggling those things while valuing social work supporting change the professional identity like even just in those few things it seems like so many opportunities yeah to confuse yourself and get tangled yeah <laughs> and you know i'm, I'm an all-in person you know, it's, it's the same as when people meet me, they go, oh my gosh, you're exactly as I expected. There's nothing, there's no, there's no filter, there's nothing there. It is, this is me. Um, and and I guess it comes from living in a, in, in a country, well, country town, but you know what I'm saying, everyone knows your business, right? So there's, there's no hiding. <laughs> people want to know stuff about you, people want to know where you live, if people want to know you're a husband, they can find that information out. So I guess it, 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 allows, it gets you to go one way or the other, doesn't it? Um, so, yeah, so I, I, it is particularly difficult for someone like me who is very transparent is because I then have to work, I have to be a different person and I have to think about the way I say things and I have to um, be mindful of, of how I approach certain topics. So when people say to me, particularly, you know, we've got um, a large Facebook page for, that supports people who are in private practice or running their own businesses. So that's not just necessarily uh, private practice as in a one-on-one -on -one scenario. Some people run training, um, uh, training organisations or, or businesses. I mean, yourself, you've got your podcast and, and things and so forth. Some people actually are subcontracted to universities um, to do supervision, and they do that as a subcontractor or a contractor. So that's a business. Um, and unfortunately, fortunately, whichever way you look at it, that's the way the world's going. And so they come and ask lots of questions. Um, so more recently with being on the board, um, if they're more professional questions, I will get teach them how to self-advocate them. 
But what 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 do you want to say? How do you want to articulate it? And and be sure to ring back through to the association. Put it in an email and um and, and do it that way. I never thought of it this way, but I wonder, it's just kind of come to mind. Um, do you think that because of the nature of social work and often putting others first, that some people might have a problem or an issue and be like, oh, I don't want to be a bother <laughs> and, not, and not use those same advocacy skills or changing policy for themselves? It's just, oh, I don't want to interrupt them. I'm sure they're really busy. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, and the other thing that people do is, is assume because I do it for somebody else, it should be somebody who does it for me. And we're tired, you know, all the advocacy that we do for everyone um, and even in our families, I think a lot of us play that role um, and, and in our communities, is that it gets tiring. It's like, oh, who's going to be that person for me? And, you know, and then some might just come to me and go, oh, please be that person. And I think it's really unsatisfying when, um, when it's around association issues or things like that. that that I have to say, I'm sorry, but you have to dig a bit deeper into it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. So for those listening who might want to get more involved, what are some things between doing nothing and being on the board? Like there, there would be opportunities throughout the organisation itself. What What are some things people can do or how can they, you know, what advice do you have around maybe connecting with others? Because it can be an isolating job, even if you're in an organisation if you're in a multidisciplinary team, you might still be the only social worker. So you're sitting with that identity on your own. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of opportunities. Um, you know, uh, you're right. Actually, even when I used to work in organisations, you can feel really isolated. You can feel like the lone voice pushing you up against and saying, no, I need a social worker on my signature or whatnot. Um, so uh, the networking opportunities. So, uh there's um, practice groups that you can become involved in. Um, also, some of the universities run um, social work-specific networking groups. Um, Deakin used to run one, and, uh, and it, was, it was so fabulous. I have to tell you, it was, it was one of the best opportunities, um, you know, prior to, you know, places like the Mental Health Professional Network. Um, and having said that, that's not just for social workers, sorry, um, but a lot of us do go to those meetings. Um, but yeah, so just trying to find some social work specific, but also some other networking opportunities that you might find um, a lot of social workers um, going along to. The other thing that people might not really grasp when they read the ASW newsletter is that there's lots of opportunities in there and they're not just for academics or people who have, um, you know, um, uh, written papers or, or, or CEOs of organisations. There's lots of expressions of interest that are asked for for people to um, to, to join together on, on pieces of work, on advocacy, on, um, on uh, all sorts of different things. And I know a lot of people say, I've seen that, but I didn't think that was for me. But I'd just like to say... Of course, it's for you. It's for you as a student. So even if you're looking at that and you think, well, what do I have to bring to the table as a student? Um, you know, if they're looking at um, social issues or whatnot, you have a lot to bring to the table because you have a different perspective and a group that can be made up of different people with different perspectives will always make a more balanced um, team. 
I think that's a really good point about even as a student um, in one of the episodes last year, I interviewed Joe and Alice who were students at the time and have started their own quarterly newsletter. And then they had a bit of a, uh, maybe a symposium for their cohort to discuss placement and they it great it gained a lot of momentum and they've been able to share their voices their experience from previous sectors coming in as master's students like they still have a voice and they're still a very valued contribution to the broader discussions absolutely and you know most people are, are really understanding that they don't know it all but not ha- you don't have to know it all I, I don't know it all you know and i've been doing this this gig for a really long time. I've been in private practice for 14 or 15 years and 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 working in the industry, I mean, I know it's hard to believe because I don't look that old. <laughs> working in the industry a lot longer than that. Um, and and it, it's, you know, it, it, I've still got a lot to learn. There is, and that's the wonderful thing about being open as a human to the world around us is that there is so much to learn and so much to gain and, and hopefully in social work is going back at this point. I'm glad you brought up the networking and practice groups because I think in multiple ways that can serve you so well. So the episode before this, um, I was chatting with um, Kate Taylor and she was looking at recruitment and saying that networking is a really good skill for you know, getting new jobs and meeting people and putting your name out there. But I know for me, those practice groups and those network meetings have been a lifesaver when I've worked in jobs where I'm the only social worker. So hearing other people normalise my experience or dealing with similar structural barriers or other environmental issues that I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I'm dealing with. Okay, so it's not just me has been a godsend. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. And sometimes, if nothing else, it gives you a little courage to one thing I want to say, you know, you said you go all in. That's something a lot of people are scared to do. My philosophy has always been if it doesn't exist, create it. Yeah. So if, if a practice group doesn't exist, you don't have to get it registered through the AASW. You can put a call out to peers, friends, put a little flyer together and create a peer supervision group. Yep, 100%. 100%. And what a great way to get CPD, right? You know, it's, what a great way, I mean, to, to live as a human. It's all about, um, you know, about connection and community. But absolutely, that ticks so many boxes, doesn't it? You know, go out and have dinner um, or, you know, um, meet at somebody's office and get coffee together and, and discuss whatever it is that you want to do. At some point, you might see the value in registering as a practice group at some point. And at some point, you may not. At some point, you may notice that there's value in registering as a mental health professional network. And at some point, you may not. So, you know, I run a practice group and a mental health professionals network group and um, and other informal groups. Um, I have a a social work students group within our practice as well where we do some mentoring and they've developed a Facebook page. They're considering whether there's value to them as being a practice group in the region. Um, and there, there's pros and cons to it all. And, yeah, but, but you, might, you might do it and then you, then you might pull back and not do it in that format if it doesn't work for you. Um, you know, and there'll be lots of reasons why people will choose to do that online. I think that's something that 
maybe we need to not be as afraid of and people, especially social, because they're really nice people and they tend to say yes to stuff and they tend to have good boundaries. So they won't say yes to something that maybe they can't commit to. So, you know, it's, I don't like even doing this podcast. I thought, oh, who's going to be on it? And people are quite, you're honest, you're transparent. You say, this is what it's about. Would you be willing to talk? And I think organizing a group or a supervision group is about a bit about the same. People yeah. clearly know. I'm setting, I'm looking at setting one up now with a couple of peers um, with an over kind of arching idea of working because I'm doing family therapy yeah. of a family therapy or a systemic lens, but to individual cases. So we're going to be getting together. We're probably thinking every six weeks because there's so many things that run monthly to look at cases with a systemic lens and then have dinner. Yeah. How great is that? So it didn't, it didn't exist in my area and I've tried a few different things. I've had a look at um, meetup groups, but it just, it just need half a dozen people to get together and make that our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? We like it. We'll build it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some of my team, uh, we do lots of radio work and, um, and commercial radio and, and so forth. And, um, and, and I try and share that with the team. You know, what a great opportunity to get over your fears of public speaking. Um, you know, how many people get to, get to go into a beautiful um, and elaborate, you know, commercial radio space and see how that works. And, you know, it's the same with us running the, one of the mental health professional network groups. Such a great opportunity for, for my team to present or to lead, um, you know, a network uh, and, and, and somebody else, you know, to, to, to sort of help set it up um, and that's what students can be involved in, our intake team get involved in it. So the value of doing any of those things is so much greater than you often assume, isn't it? You know, and you can make lifelong friends. Um, from our Facebook group, um, the Alicia um, helps me moderate it and then Lynn and I started it a long time ago. And do you know, I had never met in person Lynn before and I had never met Alicia before. And honestly, there won't be a day that goes past that I don't message, chat in some forum or occasionally have a voice call with Alicia. And she's become so much part of my world it's so lovely. It's so lovely. What a lovely consequence of starting a group. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel the same with the podcast. There are some people who I may or might never meet in person mm. and it's, you have some really kind of interesting connections and get to see someone in their workspace or being, you know, honest and vulnerable and sharing their experiences that I've never met before and I might never meet again. Yeah. Do you want to give people a shout out to the Facebook group? And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well and any other resources that you've mentioned. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, So the Facebook group is for ASW members. So just have your membership number with you. Um, uh, And also you need to be actually working in private practice or in some form of, of business where you know, um, like we were saying before, that you contract to a certain space. The reason for that is, and people say, oh, why don't you let everyone in? It actually isn't relevant to everyone, some of the information. I mean, you can imagine being in it. I mean, we've all been in groups and you get flooded with information that's just 
completely not relevant to our circumstance and it gets a bit boring. So some of the things that we'll talk about will be insurance. It'll be Medicare. It'll be, um, you know, uh, well, Zoom or telehealth or things like that uh, have become a bit more um, for everyone, whereas before that wasn't. You know, um, what are, what are, you know, bank fees and, and things like that. They're not relevant to everyone. So it's, it's not, and, it, and we don't want to be then just creating another group that exists elsewhere because there's lots of great social work groups and I encourage people to become a member of a few. But our page is called the Business of Social Work. There is an open page on Facebook and that just has some light information on it if people are looking that can then link through. And then we have the closed group. So have your membership card uh, number ready and, um, and we also need to know just a little bit of information that validates your group, so uh, that you're in business. Um, you might send it through your ABN, you might go, here's my Facebook link, um, or something like that. Um, and yeah, so we have a lot of people trying to join the group um, on a daily basis who aren't social workers. Um, so we're just being very protective around the place. That's great. Self-care tips before we wrap up. Um, for someone who juggles so many things, I imagine you've got some really valuable ways of balancing it and not burning out to have done this for so long and yeah. to not have crumbled into a big heap and maybe become a florist or something. Yeah. What are your secrets to success and longevity in the field? Don't laugh. Um, I, that's my backup plan is being a florist. <laughs> okay. So my backup plan um, to digress is that I would like to open up a tea room that, I mean, we could sell coffee, but there's just something quite beautiful about a tea room. And it opens really late. So particularly for people like women, so that they don't have to go to the pokies or anything else to have a safe space. They can come and we'll have it like a bookshop and we'll have couches. <laughs> so if I win Tots Lotto, um, and, and you know, so you don't have to go to the pokies or Kmart, you know, because our Kmart's open 24 hours. <laughs> so you could like, go to a tea room and have a cup of tea so, yeah, so how does it stop me from running away and opening up a tea room? Um, I actually, um, I'm passionate. So um, I will only take on clients that I'm passionate about. And uh, so, you know, and that changes. Um, so my background is in neurological disorders and working with the elderly, women, um, family violence and trauma. Um, but having said that, um, even when I was working at Alzheimer's Australia as a counsellor, I, for our region, I actually realised that I was feeling a bit heavy with that constant um, conversation. Loved, absolutely loved the clients, loved the work. Um, and I was not long off actually getting some long service leave and really close to it and but just knew that's it and calling it. So, so staying authentic and, and maintaining my passion and, and I moved on just to another area I loved doing um, couples counselling for a while. I did a lot of the Gottman training and so forth and just kind of felt that I wasn't really enjoying that as much anymore. Um, so I don't do that anymore. And I might go back to it. You know, I'll do, I'll do couples, uh, couples counselling, but for individuals, but I won't do it with a couple anymore. So um, I think through supervision and through knowing yourself on what it is, the kinds of work that you're enjoying doing and, and just gently over time morph into, into doing that. You know, there's really creative ways of working with clients and 
you know, um, I tell my clients we go for a walk, we can have a coffee in the park because for them that's the easiest way to do it. They'll be like, oh, we might be doing some exposure work or whatever. So trying to be creative and trying to remain passionate is probably the two things that I would say is the biggest way to keep self-care. I and think I'm fierce with my family time. Yeah. So I love hanging out with my kids and my husband and doing all those sorts of things. And and I am really fierce about not leaving there's some really great tips so I'll make sure to um, dot point them in the show notes and people can start thinking supervision comes up a lot and I think it really helps with that knowing yourself and staying authentic and if you've got a long relationship with a supervisor they start to know when oh Kate you're not you're not seeming as passionate you're not seeming as engaged and they can reflect that back to you so there's that dual kind of relationship sometimes um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I love supervision that, that is not afraid to tinker into, into personal counselling. Um, I, I, the way I was um, uh, early supervised early on in my, in my profession was that to think that the two exist in separate spaces is, um, is uh, not part of what our profession would do. Do you know what I mean? We're not, we're not um, one-dimensional human beings. Mm. Um, and, 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 and developing those boundaries at the start, yeah. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing those. And maybe we'll need to do a part two when this is all over and talk a little bit more about either the advocacy side or maybe even a bit more of a call out of to how people can get involved, a bit of a call to arms. Yeah, if any time, I'm on. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Have a great day. What an incredible social worker. Suzanne has done so many interesting things and I love her journey into social work coming from nursing, being interested in social science. It's just really incredible. And we hear so many stories like that where people finally come to the dark side and they find that social work is a career that just fits so if you're not a social worker and you want to find out a little bit more, head over to the website. You can join the mailing list and download a copy of my social work career guide so that goes through a few things to consider about what might be a good area for you, something that you're interested in. And if you're filling up for it, if you've got a little bit of money to spare, you can make a donation or a contribution, sorry, to my PayPal account. Um, and the details are there on the website. So that'll help keep this podcast going. If you'd like to hear a particular episode or a particular topic, email me. I'd love to hear from you. So you can reach me at marie at m-a-r-i-e at insidesocialwork.com. You can find me on Facebook in the Facebook group. Uh, you can contact me via LinkedIn. I really want to hear from you. And if you've got a story to share and you want to get on the podcast, get in contact. We don't need experts. You don't need to be an expert in your field. I just want to hear your journey. I want to hear how you got into social work, what you're working on. You might be doing something that's a little bit unique or specialized or even just general. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.